If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to be picking up in verse 57. We're working verse by verse right now through Luke's gospel. And over the last three weeks, we have seen the way that Luke uh, has been weaving together two stories, right? The story of the birth of John the Baptist and the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. John, uh, John, not John, Luke wants to make sure that his readers know that the lives of these two key figures are linked together, that one is the forerunner to the Messiah, the other is the Messiah. So in the first week of our study, we read about the angel Gabriel visiting a priest named Zechariah to announce that his wife Elizabeth was going to have a baby. Then in, in the second week, the angel Gabriel was sent on another mission, this time to a young girl named Mary to announce that she also was going to be pregnant with a boy that she would name Jesus. Then last week, Luke wrote about the fact that Mary then went to visit Elizabeth, and he brought these two stories together. And when Mary arrived at Elizabeth's home, she greeted her, right? And, and what Luke says is, as soon as Elizabeth heard the sound of Mary's voice, the baby in her womb leaped for joy, right? John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah, wasn't even born yet, and he was already pointing people to Jesus. He was already beginning his ministry as the forerunner for the Messiah. Well, over the next two messages, today and tomorrow, we're going to have two babies born. I've been telling people that everywhere. Like this morning, I said, yeah, over the next two weeks, we have two babies being born. And people are like, really? Who's, who's having a baby? I'm like, well, Elizabeth is giving birth to JTB. Uh, John the Baptist is going to be born this week. And then next week, Jesus is, is going to be born. But uh, that's pretty cool that next week on Christmas Sunday, on Christmas, I know like all you diehards, you're still going to be, you came out in the snow. I'm sure you're going to be here on Christmas morning too. Um, but yeah, next Sunday, we're going to be reading about the birth of Christ on Christmas, Christmas morning. Looking forward to that. But let's, before we jump into the birth of John the Baptist, let's just cover or recap a little bit about what we've learned about John the Baptist so far. So in, in the first week of our study, Luke began by telling the story again of the angel Gabriel visiting Zechariah while he was serving at the temple, right? He was picked for this special honor to go ahead and, and offer incense on the altar of incense. And it was the first time probably in his life, he was now an old man, he had this privilege to do that. And while he's in the holy place, the angel Gabriel shows up, right? Terrified, uh, Zechariah would have been. But he shows up and he tells him that your wife is going to have a baby, even though, even though you guys are old, even though you're well past the age of, of childbearing years, you are going to be a dad. And your son isn't going to be just any son. Your son is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. It's incredible news, right? This is incredible news. Not only, not only were Zechariah and Elizabeth going to finally be parents, right? But their son was the, was the forerunner to the long-awaited Messiah. People were waiting for the Messiah for centuries. Unfortunately, however, even though this is incredible news, unfortunately, Zechariah didn't believe it. 
Well, you can't really blame him, right? I mean, because it, it is a little unheard of. I mean, he's so, he's old, and his wife is old, so he, he doesn't believe. So he says to Gabriel, I'm going to need a sign, right? You're going to have to give me a sign greater than sending an angel. You, <laughs> you need to give me a sign. So Gabriel says, no problem. We got this. Because you didn't believe, because you didn't believe, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. And I think right in that moment, Zechariah goes silent, no longer able to speak. It's still going to happen, though. Isn't it great to know that even though sometimes we doubt God, that our doubts don't keep God from moving forward with his plans, that God is sovereign, he's in control. He says, oh, it's going to happen. Your wife is going to have a baby, and your baby is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. But because of your disbelief, you're going to experience consequences, Zechariah. You're going to experience discipline from the Lord. How many of you ever found yourself on the receiving end of God's discipline? Anybody? Oh, the rest of you are lying. <laughs> like, never, never, you know. Right. I know I have. I mean, a lot, you know. Um, I remember the first time I, a mature Christian believer, I was like 19 years old, and a mature Christian brother sat me down, and he took me to this passage in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, we read this. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, we, when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. A few verses later, we read that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. <laughs> discipline does not feel good, right? We don't like it. We don't like it. But why did God discipline Zechariah? What does it say? Because he loves him, right? Because he loves him, he disciplines him. He loves us, so he disciplines us to help us grow, right? And as we're going to see in this passage, it, it worked. It worked. After Zechariah completed his time at the temple, unable to speak, he returns to his home, and Elizabeth conceived. And... When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, she had a visit, a visit from Mary, who was also pregnant. And Mary comes, and we already talked about the fact the baby leaps for joy in her womb. And then it says that Mary stayed with Zechariah and Elizabeth for three months. All right, so she was six months pregnant. Mary shows up. She stays for three more months. So now Elizabeth is now nine months pregnant pregnant. She's about to give birth. Verse 57, where we're picking up today, we read this. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Elizabeth's neighbors and, and her friends are celebrating, her relatives, they're celebrating the birth of Elizabeth's first child. Now, a baby's birth is cause for celebration under normal circumstances, right? I mean, we always celebrate the birth of a baby. 
But when you consider all of the circumstances surrounding the birth of this baby, there is cause for great celebration, right? For starters, we've already talked about this, but Zechariah and Elizabeth are old, right? This is a miracle, right? Even though they were righteous, because Luke tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous, they had no children. And in verse 7 of chapter 1, Luke tells us that, that Elizabeth was barren. In that culture, people interpreted childlessness as, as a form of discipline from the Lord. In the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth, Luke says, no, they were righteous. This is not discipline from God that, that they don't have a child. It's part of God's plan. But in Psalm 127, verse 3, we're told that children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So that's the scriptures they're growing up hearing, right? And so many believe that if you were childless, this was a sign of God's displeasure or his judgment. And so people would have looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth and they would have said, man, they, they appear righteous, but what sin must they be hiding, right? Verse 25, do you remember what Elizabeth said when she, when she, when she was pregnant? She said, the Lord, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Elizabeth knew that this pregnancy, this birth, would finally remove the reproach, the, the stigma that she had been carrying for decades, you know? At some point along the line, when, when she was 40, maybe, 35, 40, 45, 50, at some point, people started whispering, there's something wrong with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it was, it was a reproach. It was a stigma that she carried. And now, with the birth of this child, that stigma would be gone. And imagine for the people what this pregnancy looked like, right? In the eyes of her neighbors and her relatives, everything about this child, everything about this child screamed, God is up to something. God is doing something, right? Think about it. Zechariah, he's in his old age. He is finally chosen. He finally gets the privilege of being the one who goes in the temple. He goes into the temple and something happened. The people weren't there, but all they know is Zechariah goes in talking. He comes out, and he's doing sign language. He can't talk. He was in there for a really long time, and then after Zechariah finishes his time at the temple, he goes home, and his old wife gets pregnant. The people are like, what is going on? What is God up to? This is the same type of miracle that they had read about in the book of Genesis, these people had grown up studying the Old Testament scriptures. They would have been really, really familiar with the story about Abraham and Sarah, right? The patriarch, Abraham. Abraham was 100 years old, his wife, 90, right? When the Lord promised to give her a son, Isaac, the son of the promise, right? And God gave Abraham and, and, and Sarah Isaac for a very special purpose. And so no doubt, these people who are watching all that's going on with Zechariah and Elizabeth, they must have been wondering, what is the special purpose that God has in mind for this child of Zechariah and Elizabeth? 
God is clearly up to something. This is a miracle. And I think if we don't recognize that, I mean, we're just not reading the text, right? This is a miracle that's taking place. And when miracles take place, they don't happen every day, right? It should cause us to say, whoa, what is God doing? What is God doing? And so that's what they're doing. So they, 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 they see this baby's born and they rejoice. They have no idea what is God up to. Now, back in verse 14, you remember what uh, Gabriel told uh, Zechariah when he was in the temple? He said that many will rejoice at his birth. They did. They, they were actually helping to fulfill what, what Gabriel had said. Well, in verse 59, we read, on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he will be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. Eight days after the birth of a baby boy, the friends and family would gather together for a special service, a celebration which included the baby boy being circumcised. We, we, don't, we don't do that celebration any, anymore. Um, but also at this service, the tradition was to name the baby boy on the same day. In the book of Genesis, chapter 17, God spoke to Abraham and he commanded that every male child of the Jewish people would be circumcised on the eighth day. It was an outward sign of the covenant between God and his chosen people. By the way, uh, when you get to the New Testament, this became a really hot topic uh, in the early church, right? You read the book of Galatians, that, that the, the Jewish Christians were torn up because they were like, well, should we make Gentile new believers? Should they also have to practice things like circumcision? And the overwhelming um, evidence from the New Testament is that no, Gentiles, this is not imposed upon, upon Gentiles. But it was part of the Jewish culture. And so over time, over time, they also added the naming of the baby to this, this eighth-day celebration of the circumcision. And when they would choose the baby's name, when they would choose the baby's name, the, the tradition would be that you would either name the child after his father or name him after somebody else in the family. And for some reason, for some reason that's not stated, the people who were gathered for the naming of this baby assumed that Zechariah and Elizabeth were gonna name him after his father. Maybe it's because he couldn't talk or maybe it's because he was old and they thought, you know, this is probably the only child they're ever gonna have. The most logical thing is they're gonna name him Zechariah. And so they assumed this. But when Elizabeth hears them talking and referring to this new baby as Zechariah, she speaks up and she says, no, he will be called John. Now, in our culture, like whatever, the mom should have a say in what they name the baby, right? I mean, nobody would object to this at all, right? But in that culture, this was, I mean, this was crazy. This was crazy. What, what do you mean you're going to name him John? Nobody in your family is named John. It would, almost be, it would almost be insulting in some ways, right? You're not gonna name your baby after his dad? 
what's going on here? This is weird, right? By the way, this also shows us that, that Zechariah had, had found a way to communicate with Elizabeth, right? She knew what the baby's name was going to be, probably through writing. He probably wrote to her you know, on a tablet, which we'll see later in this, in this text. But this is awkward. This is an awkward moment for the people as, as they're not sure why she is naming her boy John. So rather than go along with it, they're like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. So, so they turn to Zechariah. And in verse, six, verse 62, they said, they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and he wrote four words, his name is John. <laughs> and they all wondered. This is bizarre. This doesn't make sense. Notice here that they didn't ask Zechariah verbally. You ever notice that in this text? They don't say, hey, Zechariah, what do you want to name him? They don't. They start doing the whole charades thing. They're doing the, the whole sign language thing with Zechariah. They say, what do you want to name the boy, right? Now, this can only mean one of two things. Either the people wrongly assumed that Zechariah was deaf because he couldn't speak, so that maybe they assumed that he couldn't hear. It's possible. I've done this. Have you ever... It's embarrassing. <laughs> not, not in this exact situation, but have you ever been talking to somebody who's like, let's say, blind, and you raise your voice when you're talking to them? Like, oh, I'm Chris. And they're like, yeah, I'm blind. I'm not deaf. Like, oh, yeah, I look stupid right now. Yeah. So we do that sometimes, right? We, we do that type of thing. So it's possible that they just wrongly assumed that he was deaf. But more likely, and this is where I would lean, I think it shows that when Zechariah lost his voice, maybe he lost his hearing as well. If you go back to verse 20, Gabriel told Zechariah that he would be, what does it say? Silent and unable to speak. Could it be? Could it be that Zechariah waited in literal silence for at least nine months? If so, if so, that means that the last words that he heard were the words of Gabriel in the temple. And this is what Gabriel said. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. It's interesting because this is coming on the heels of what's referred to as the 400 years of silence. After 400 years of silence where the people were waiting to hear from God, the last word from God came through the prophet Malachi. After 400 years of silence, God sends an, an angel, breaks the silence, and speaks to a priest. But the priest did not believe. So nine more months of silence. Nine more months. And, and, and during those nine months, what do you think Zechariah is thinking about? He's got the words of Gabriel playing over and over and over in his, in his ears, right, in his mind. Zechariah had nine months to consider what Gabriel revealed about his son, nine months to reflect on his own disbelief. And so when they come to him, after nine months of chewing on this, when they come and they say, what do you want to name the baby, Zechariah? Zechariah grabs a tablet, which is probably just like a piece of wood with wax over it, and he wrote these words, his name is John. 
He doesn't say his name will be John. His name is John. This is not up for debate. Zechariah and Elizabeth go against all the cultural pressures and all of the traditions. They choose to walk in obedience to God when it's difficult. You know, it took courage for Elizabeth to speak up, you know, in that culture. Think about the amount of courage it took for her. Everybody's like just assuming, yeah, we can name it after your, your husband, right? Well, yeah, that does seem logical. But no, she stands up. She says, no, you can't name him Zechariah. You need to name him John. It took humility from Zechariah, right, to say, yeah, I kind of always pictured if we did have a, a son, he'd be ZJ, you know, and junior, I, right? But, but no, he says, no, God told us we got to name him John. It took humility. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, they feared God more than they feared what people would think, right? And we should too. We should too. Brothers and sisters, we should be living our lives for the applause of heaven, right? Not the approval of man, right? It's God's applause that we seek. God says, name your kid Crayon. You name him Crayon. Whatever he says is what you do. And people look at you like you're crazy. You know, people looked at Joshua like he was crazy, right? When he marched around the wall seven times, right? But he was obedient and God moved powerfully. Well, Gabriel told him that his name would be John, so the boy was named John, a name which means God is gracious. It's a fitting name, really, if you think about it, because God had been very gracious to Zechariah and Elizabeth. But more than being gracious to, to Zechariah and Elizabeth, John's birth John's birth, the birth of the forerunner, marked the beginning of the grace that God was going to bring forth through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, when the people read what Zechariah wrote on the tablet, it just says they all wondered. They wondered, what, what does this mean? What is going on here? I don't understand. What is God doing? Well, verse 64 says, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. As soon as as Zechariah obeyed the word of the Lord, as soon as Zechariah named his son John, his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed. What's the first thing that comes out of his mouth? Praise. He was praising God. There's not a hint of bitterness over the discipline that he had received. Nine months, right? Unable to speak. Nine months. As the saying goes, Zechariah did not become bitter. He became better, right? He didn't get better. He got better. God's discipline produced that righteousness that we read about in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. He embraced God's discipline in his life, and he grew because of it. The first sounds that come out of his mouth are words of praise. Verse 65, we read, and fear came on all their neighbors And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. You know, put yourself in their shoes, right? Relatives, neighbors, they're all gathered for this occasion. And and as I said earlier, everything about this uh, this child's birth up to this point has been totally miraculous, out of the ordinary, right? And now, on top of everything we've already covered, as they are there 
for the circumcision and the naming. As soon as they name him John, this guy that they've been sign language thing with, with, with him for nine months, right? Talking to him through sign. Suddenly, miraculously, his voice is restored. And again, they're like, what is going on with this baby? There's obviously something big that God is up to here. What then will this child be? That's their question. Well, that brings us now to verse 67, where Luke says, and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. As soon as Zechariah's voice was restored, we already said this, he began to praise, right? He was blessing God. Now, beginning in verse 68, we get to hear the words that were pouring out of Zechariah's mouth. These next several verses uh, from 68 to 79 are called the Song of Zechariah or the Benedictus. Just like Mary's song we looked at last week, uh, Mary's song was the Magnificat. This song is also named after the first word that comes in the Latin translation of the song, benedictus, or blessed, as it's translated in English. And just like Mary's song, Zechariah's song is filled with references to the Old Testament scriptures. The the, the scriptures that, as a priest, and last week we talked about the fact that Mary was well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. Zechariah had spent his entire life studying the Old Testament. Luke tells us that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Now, last week we saw baby John filled with the Spirit, right? And he's leaping for joy. We saw Elizabeth filled with the Spirit and she's speaking to Mary, right? Now, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit as he speaks before the people. God is anointing him in this moment, filling him with the Spirit for a purpose, is to declare the words that he's about to say. After nine months of silence, Zechariah's tongue is set loose to speak, and, uh, and this is the song that came forth from him. And this song can be divided into two parts, two sections. In the first section, verses 68 to 75, Zechariah praises God for what he has done. Last week, you noticed um, that Mary's uh, song was largely talking about who God is, right? God is gracious. God is merciful, right? We were looking at the different attributes of who God is. Zechariah, in the beginning of his song, focuses on what God has done. It's important to do both, isn't it? We praise God. We pray to God, and we thank him for who he is, and we can thank him for all he has done. The second part of this song is in verses 76 to 79, where Zechariah is going to prophesy about his son, John, and the Messiah that's going to come after him. So let's begin with verses 68 through 75. And by the way, uh, this is one sentence in the original language in Greek. So I'm going to try to read it in one breath, okay? (laughs) This This is Zechariah, nine months. I've been holding this in. I've been holding it in. So here it comes. Zechariah, he bursts forth and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. I'm already out of breath. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Whew! Been holding that in for nine months. Had to get that out. To paraphrase, Zechariah says, praise God, praise God for what he has done. Praise God. Zechariah was a priest. He, he was familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. He knew the promises that God had made to Abraham, right? He knew the words that had been spoken about the Messiah through the prophets. He knew that Messiah would come from the line of David, a descendant of Judah. And for nine months, Zechariah has been holding on to the good news that he heard in the temple from Gabriel. The Messiah is on the way. That was much bigger news to Zechariah than the fact that he was going to be a dad. Being a dad was great. Being a dad to the forerunner, that's incredible. But the fact that the Messiah is on the way was the greatest news that Zechariah could have received. And for nine months, he's been thinking about all that the angel Gabriel had told him, thinking about what it's going to mean for him to raise a son who would be the forerunner. Nine months thinking about all the scriptures that he had studied his whole life about the coming Messiah. And so he cries out, praise God for what he has done. He has fulfilled what he declared through the prophets. He's raised up a savior from the house of David, a horn of salvation for us. It's kind of a weird thing, a horn of salvation. In the Old Testament, the horn of an animal, of an animal was a symbol of its strength. In Psalm 18, verse 2, David says this about the Lord. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He's raised up a savior, a strong savior. Zechariah says, it is happening. We've been waiting centuries for this, right? And it's happening now. God is sending the Messiah to save us from our enemies. He is fulfilling the oath that he made to Abraham. He's freeing us up, right, to do what? To serve him, verses 74 and 75, to serve him without fear, freeing us to live in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now, I need to remind you that at the time when Zechariah is prophesying this, the Jews were living under the power and the authority of Rome. We talked about that in the first week of the series. And so consequently, many Jews were praying for God to send his Messiah in order to overthrow the Romans and to set his people free. They were expecting, they were looking for a political or a national savior. That was the messianic expectation for many of the people. But Jesus came to provide a much greater freedom than that. Jesus came to set them free from the power of the greatest enemies that we have, the power of sin, the power of death, to set us free from the power of Satan, right? Jesus came so that we could experience salvation from our sins, setting us free to experience reconciliation with God the Father, to become children of God. Think about that. He set us free from the fear of death, 
He came to give us life, eternal life, right? Make no mistake, though, that there is a day coming where those hopes that they had for the, for the, for the Savior who would save them from the, over, the government and from the people who hated them, that day is coming. There is a day coming when the Messiah is going to return, and he's going to overthrow all those who oppose him. Jesus is going to return. He's going to set up his kingdom. You know, in his first coming, we talk about it. He came as a lamb, right? As a sacrifice for our sins. But in his second coming, he's going to come as a lion to overthrow the kingdoms of the world and establish his rule and his reign. Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, praised God for what he has done. He said, it's happening. Everything we've been hoping for is happening. The Messiah was coming to save his people, setting them free to live in holiness and righteousness. So he breaks forth and prays for what he's done. The the forerunner is here. Now, in verse 76, Zechariah, I kind of picture this in my mind. I picture Zechariah I don't know if he's holding the baby or if he just turns to whoever's holding the baby. Maybe mom is holding him. Typically, the mom would hold the baby for the, for the circumcision. So maybe, maybe Elizabeth's still holding the baby. But I see Zechariah turning and looking at his son. Maybe he picked him up and held him in his arms. And he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Can you even imagine this moment for Zechariah? (laughs) He's always wanted to be a dad. What a moment. I I remember when our boys were born, all of them, particularly our first son. He was very sick when he was born. He was in the hospital. And uh, I remember uh, walking him in the little little. Pull, what do you call that thing? A little cart, you know, that they laid the baby in, and just walking him up and down the aisles of the hospital because the movement kept him from crying. And I remember praying over my son those days, praying that he would live. Uh, we were worried at that time, but also just praying for God's plans over his life. And, you know, we prayed for our boys, all of our boys throughout their lives. Zechariah looks at his son and he knows so much about what this boy is going to become. We don't always know what's going to become of our children, right? But Zechariah knows that his son has got a really important job. Incredible, incredible moment for this, this priest of Israel. And he looks into the eyes of his, his baby boy, eight, eight days old, and he says, you, John, John, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. John, you're the one. You're the one that Isaiah spoke of when he said, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John, John, you're the one that Malachi spoke of when he said, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. In John chapter 1, verse 23, when John the Baptist was asked, they said, who are you? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You think his parents told him that growing up? You're the one. Johnny, you're the one. Zechariah looks at his baby and he says, my son, God has chosen you to prepare his people for the coming of the Messiah, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. In Luke chapter three, Luke chapter three, John, uh, 
Luke says that John went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's fulfilling the mission, right? John's mission was to go before Jesus, calling people to repentance that they might experience salvation in the forgiveness of their sins. But that wasn't just John's mission. At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus gave his disciples the same mission. Jesus says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He gave that mission to his disciples, his followers. Are you a disciple of Christ? That's your mission as well. The same mission that John had to proclaim salvation through Jesus Christ. Amazing. Verse 78, Zechariah continues and he says, because of the tender mercy of our God. Zechariah says that this message, this message that his son is called to proclaim, the message of salvation and forgiveness of sins is made possible because of the tender mercy of our God. Our salvation is a demonstration of God's great mercy. We don't deserve it, right? We just don't. Listen to what Peter says. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, it's not on the screen, but just listen to what he says. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wow, God's great mercy. Zechariah says that this message of salvation and forgiveness of sins is because of the tender mercy of God, of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You know, Zechariah began this song in verses 68 and 69 by praising God for his visitation, right? For raising up a horn of salvation from the house of David. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the horn of salvation from the, from the house of David. And here in verse 78, the metaphor switches from a horn, right, to a light, the sunrise from on high. The Messiah is the sunrise from on high, who will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah is drawing here, again, the whole, the whole song is from the Old Testament, but he's drawing here from Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, where the prophet writes, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, Isaiah says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Then in verse 6, Isaiah says, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Zechariah says that the light is coming. Like, I don't know, I don't know if we can, we can't fully appreciate how much they were longing for his coming. Because you've grown up your whole life, for most of you, some of you are, are maybe you're new Christians, but a lot of you have grown up your whole life looking back on an event where Jesus Christ came into the world. He already came. You've been hearing about it. These people were waiting. When is Messiah going to come? When is Messiah going to come? When is Messiah going to come? And no doubt there were people who started to think, maybe God has forgotten us. You know, maybe, maybe Abraham was wrong. Maybe he didn't hear God correctly. You know, maybe, maybe the, the prophecies about the, the Messiah coming from the line of David, I don't know, you know? It's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And Isaiah says, he's coming. The horn of salvation is coming. The light is coming. The one we've been talking about, Isaiah talked about, Malachi talked about, all of them, they talked about this day. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, is coming. And through Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice, we now have what? We have peace with God. That's the theme for today in Advent. Peace, knowing that our sins are forgiven. Peace, knowing that we have a relationship with God the Father. Peace, knowing that one day we're gonna be with Jesus forever, right? And we have peace knowing that he is with us even now, always. He's always with us, present in our lives. But that peace is only found. It's only found in a relationship with Jesus, right? We have to come to him, repent of our sins. That's John's message, repent, right? Repent, turn away from your sins and confess your need for forgiveness. And when we come to Jesus and we repent of our sins, we come to him and we confess our need for a savior, he is waiting to receive us, waiting. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, the scriptures say. We become children of God and we receive eternal peace with him. You know, if you have never experienced that peace, man, it's Christmas. This is what Jesus came for. This is what he came for. So today, make the decision to, to cry out to God. You don't have to, we could do it. You could come walking down this aisle and stand here and I could lead you in a prayer. Or you could literally, right where you are right now, cry out to him and say, Jesus, thank you for coming. I need that peace in my life. I do. I need my sins forgiven. You can do that right now, right where you're sitting. If you have questions and you want to talk about it, I'd be happy after, after the service, come talk with me. I'd be happy to pray with you, talk with you, answer any questions you might have. But this is why Jesus came. He came to restore the broken relationship between God and mankind. He is the Prince of Peace, and it's available to you. It's the greatest gift ever given. Well, Zechariah praises God. He praises God for what he's done. He prophesies about his son, John, and, and the Messiah who is coming after him, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I love the fact that, you know, as, as excited as, as Zechariah must have been about having a son, a, a son, this song is about Jesus, isn't it? And, and John's life will be about Jesus. What does John say later on in his life? He says, I must decrease, Right? 
and he must increase. John's whole mission was to point people to Jesus, and that's our mission as well. That's what we should be doing. Next week, next week we're gonna, we're gonna take a closer look at the details surrounding the birth of Jesus. Man, I really hope, <laughs> so I hope that I don't ruin the Christmas story for some of you. Um, we're gonna take a look at it. There, there might be some things that maybe are just cemented in your, in your brain about the Christmas story that aren't actually rooted in scripture, you know? They're beautiful parts of the Christmas story, but they, they've, they've, they're traditions that have developed over the years. And I hope I don't ruin your, your view of Christmas uh, next week, but that'll, that'll be fun. We'll take a look at that on Christmas morning. For, for this morning, though, let's just conclude our time with uh, Luke's closing words in, in verse 80. Luke finishes this chapter in this section by saying, the child, this is John, grew and became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. You know, what's interesting about this is that John was the son of, of a priest, right? Which meant that, that John the Baptist would have been raised, or under normal circumstances, would have been raised to be a, a priest. But God's got a totally different mission for this guy. This child is, his parents was like, John is so strange. He's out, have you seen the way, do you see the clothes he put on today? You know, some of you parents, you, you see your kids, they go get dressed and you're like, what? John's like putting on camel's hair and stuff and his parents are like, John, man, John, he's, he's unique. He's not wearing priestly garments, you know? <laughs> Eating bugs and, and honey, John. John was unique, and he spent his time getting ready, but he says he grew and he became strong in spirit. This guy was different. Filled with the Holy Spirit from inside his mother's womb, this guy was, had a singular focus on living his life to point people to Jesus which he's going to do. We're going to read more about John when we get later into the book of Luke. I think chapter three, he's going to appear again as a man at that point. But, uh, but that's chapter three. We'll get there in a, in a few weeks. So, oh, baby John, born baby Jesus next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just love you so much. And we really have so much to be joyful for. Because your son Jesus, the horn of our salvation, the light who brings us peace came into this world and brought us back into a right relationship with you. God, our hearts are filled with peace. And God, I do pray, if there's somebody here this morning who has never received your son as their Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day. The whole reason that you sent your son Jesus was to bring people back into a right relationship with you. You are the gift. And God, I pray again, if there's somebody here who doesn't know you already, that today would be the day they'd turn their hearts to you. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. We love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.